Hello, welcome back to our podcast. Very glad that you are here with us as we continue our discussion on Deuteronomy. My name's Cameron. Yeah, g'day everybody. Ken, back with you this time. And I'm Lachlan. Yeah, Luke's not with us yet. He may be able to join us soon, uh, depending on, uh, I think, how easily his very wonderful daughter goes to sleep. And uh, having had three kids, I know that uh, them being wonderful does not seem to stop them from staying awake for large amounts of time at inconvenient moments. So uh, that's that's how it is. We are not going to follow the lesson discussion this week, although we are going to stay in Deuteronomy. We're going to dive into some of the chapters skipped over by the SDA quarterly. And uh, we're, we're getting to a part of the book which has a lot of disconnected laws. And some of them are quite interesting. And some of them are, are definitely... I think will provoke a lot of discussion. Uh, and this would be part of the book that I perhaps resonate less strongly with uh, than some of the other parts we've seen. But I think it's it's really interesting to see and to read and to learn. And some of this, I'm sure, will resonate very strongly. So let's, let's find out. Uh, <clears throat> we're looking across Deuteronomy 19, 20, 21. And uh, there's, a, there's a range of laws. Ken, do you want to kick us off? You were talking, I think, uh, before we started recording about a section in uh, Deuteronomy 19. Yeah, I thought this was an interesting section. It perhaps spoke to me uh, in my role. Um, yes. Uh, a single witness, this is verse nine, 15 of chapter 19. Uh, a single witness shall not suffice to convict a person of any crime or wrongdoing in connection with any offence that may be committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be sustained. It's interesting now that there's, uh, I'll just pause there for a moment, um, there is a particular body of law that relates to how one should deal with a word-on-word -word case uh, or an oath-on-oath -oath case. Um, that uh, uh, particularly when one's looking at whether or not a charge has been proved uh, beyond reasonable doubt, um, hmm. it's uh, a particular caution has to be taken uh, where it's just one witness uh, against another witness. Uh, there are times when the evidence of one witness might be accepted, uh, even contrary to the sworn uh, evidence of a defendant, um, uh, where a defendant's evidence might be uh, inherently uh, implausible, um, fanciful or speculative, and the, uh, uh, the evidence of the, the single witness is consistent with other observable facts and uh, but in any event, I think it's interesting that you need two witnesses um, uh, or, or three witnesses before a charge can be sustained. Then there's this interesting passage. If a malicious witness comes forward to accuse someone of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days, and the judges shall make a thorough inquiry. Uh, I'll just pause there. Um, uh, mm. judic judicial diligence uh, is required. Um, and that is, I've spoken in the podcast previously about uh, the requirement for due process and natural justice. Uh, and mm. it's clear that uh, diligence is part of what is needed for uh, a fair procedure, a diligence on the part of the decision maker. Um, mm. uh, I spent uh, 10 hours on a Sunday uh, working on one matter today, so I trust that covers diligence. I hope it ends up that I make the right decision but um, uh, in any event there's that diligence 
If the witness is a false witness, and this is interesting, having testified falsely against another, then you shall do to the false witness just as the false witness had meant to do to the other. So mm-hmm. you shall purge the evil from your midst. Um, because the rest shall hear and be afraid, and a crime such as this shall never again be committed among you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, it's interesting because mm-hmm. that passage we often isolate out uh, and treat it on its own to say, well, what you have to do is punish some if somebody takes a you know, if somebody cuts off somebody's foot or whatever it might be then you cut off their foot and you know if somebody mm. kills somebody then you take their life but that's not actually what it's saying at all all it's saying is whatever the person who gave the false testimony sought to achieve against their opponent is what should be the punishment that they yeah. should receive so the, the punishment yeah. punishment for being a false witness in a petty theft case is is fairly small compared with being a false witness in a murder case. Mm, mm. And, and yeah. that's as it should be, potentially, because uh, the consequences are so much different. Uh, mm. So, yeah, I think there's something real uh, uh, proportional about that. And, and, and that's another important principle of justice is proportionality. Well, that as you were reading that, Ken, my mind jumped to the story of um, uh, Esther and Haman uh, and Mordecai, mm, and, mm. and in a number of places, <laughs> the, the, uh, Haman gets tricked because the king asks him what he should do to someone who the king wishes to to honor, and and Haman <laughs> thinks of the honor that he would like to receive himself. Uh, that gets given to Mordecai. But am I correct in thinking that at the end of that story, Haman gets essentially hung on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai? That's my recollection. Um, Although, so, so that that lock, is that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the lock. I understand that it's uh, possibly more accurately translated as impaled on a stick. Yeah. Okay. Well, in either case, in either case, it seems that the story uh, there at the end of the Book of Esther is saying that Haman got. Um, the just just what he had meant to do to the other uh picking up on the phrasing here mm. um and uh, that's an interesting element there that i'd never connected i think chap chapter 20 is also quite interesting uh because it talk talks about, about the rules of warfare uh, go on I, I was going to talk about chapter 20 and then the second part of the second sort of installment section in in 21 i, mm. I find it very uncomfortable piecing together verses from from 20 to 21 and i'm picking and choosing to 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 connect them into a narrative they're separated by other laws in between them uh, but this is this is this when the lord delivers the city into your hand put to the sword all the men in it as for the women the children livestock and everything else in the city you may take these as plunder for yourselves uh, so what are you what are you meant to do with these well um, in the next chapter verse 10 uh, when you go to war against your enemies and you take captives and you notice there's a there's a beautiful young lady there and you're attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. You must give her time to mourn for her mother and her father and then you can sleep with her. And then if afterwards you decide that you don't like her that much, you can let her go. But you must not sell her as a slave hmm. because you have dishonoured her. <laughs> I think the silence is just expressing the degree of discomfort that one feels about yeah. that, <laughs> from this cultural context at least. Yeah. There's a couple of things to say about this. Um, and and what, 
to say that the these passages are progressive for their time doesn't take away the uncomfortable part because they obviously are not progressive enough. But it is needs to be stated that what's being described here is a hugely progressive thing. To, to state that the captive woman has rights of any kind is a very progressive thing. Even the eye for the eye, tooth for a tooth, Ken, is, is, is a message of restraint. When someone lies in the witness stand, you must do no more to them than what they they mm. wanted uh, done to the other person. So there, there is a message of restraint in here. And and I'm very uncomfortable with this. Uh, but uh, I, I, I think that if a captive woman is effectively in this scenario... Although it's not describing rape, it's it's you may marry. It says you can sleep with her if you've chosen to marry her. Um, so there's there has to be some commitment, and there's you're allowed to change your mind afterwards. But but you have to recognise that you have dishonoured this uh, young woman, and you cannot uh, sell her or treat her as a slave. Mm. So uh, you know there's some silver linings to an otherwise fairly dark cloud of, of difficult ideas. Uh, but but it is, I think, definitely the case that not many other nations would have um, enshrined in their law and the religious texts rights for foreign women captured in the course of war. Mm. The whole the whole context here of rules for warfare, I mean, my, my Bible has at the start of chapter 20 a little heading, Rules of Warfare, which, you know, I don't think this is what the, the songwriter had in mind when they um, when they wrote the song Onward Christian Soldiers. <laughs> well, the, the, the interesting thing, one of the interesting things about the, the, the rules of warfare is, um, first of all, you're not allowed to be afraid because God's going to fight for you. Uh, mm. Secondly, um, the, uh, the briefing at the start of the battle is not to be undertaken by the colonels and the generals and the sergeants and, you know, down like that. It's to be undertaken by the chaplains. Uh, so the chaplains <laughs> are the ones who have to... And, and the other interesting aspect about it is, um, because we're not, it seems to me, that one way of looking at it is this, because we're not concerned about uh, a victory, that's something that's in God's hands and he's going to be fighting for us. Um, if you haven't finished building your house, then go home and finish it. Um, if you haven't married the person that you're engaged to, then you better go home and do that so that uh, you get to do that before you're killed. Um, and so if there's any domestic you know, chores of any sort at all, well, they take priority over your uh, responsibilities as a soldier. Uh, so make sure you go and finish them. Um, I thought that's an interesting yeah. approach. That to, is interesting. Uh, uh, to, to, to conscription, <laughs> a sort of a reverse conscription. <laughs> um, <laughs> Everyone's conscripted, but yeah, there's a Monty Python sketch. Have you seen the Monty <laughs> Python sketch with the Sergeant Major? All right, man. All right. Attention. He's a real strict Sergeant Major. He says, all right, then. Atkins, uh, you're not looking, you know, very enthusiastic. Atkins, yeah, well, uh, the truth is, Sergeant, that I'd, uh, I'm halfway through a book, and I'd, all right, then off you go. Um, is anyone into it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then, and then it ends up with, uh, at the end of the skit, he says, to the rest of the soldiers, after five of them have departed, one of them to pl- do piano practice, and one of them to. He says to the others, all right, then I suppose all the rest of you would rather be at the pictures. And they all say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah Sarge, we would. All right, off you go. And he's, <laughs> he's left on his own. 
Um, oh, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I noticed the, that detail as well, Ken. If you've um, has has anyone become engaged to a woman but not yet married her, he should go back to his house. <laughs> and and uh, you know, it's it's not even. I, I even think there's something about the way that it's written with these. I don't know, almost rhetorical questions rather than just sort of listing, you know, if this, if this, if this, it seems to be written with a bit of flair. Um, to, yeah. well, it's not just, to... <clears throat> yeah, I, I agree, Locke. I think it, there's got a lot of flair. Uh, it's not just though people with sort of legitimate concerns. It's, <laughs> is anyone worried or disheartened? Is anyone just really frightened? Send them home. Mm. Send them home. They'll be a liability. They might make other people disheartened too. Yeah. Well, I actually want to pick up on this. Uh, this this is connected to something that I've just noticed in a few of these other verses. So what was it? What was the reason for the punishing the false witness that Ken saw at the end of chapter 19? Um, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. The rest shall hear and be afraid. And a crime such as this never again shall be committed among you. Fear. Fear is the motivator that is being sought as as a as a as an action there, um, can, can I jump? In, and, can I jump in there because I uh, just no. You keep going. Actually, you keep going. Well, it comes up again. Um, it does in twenty one verse nine after the uh, uh, yes. atoning act for the uh, murder by persons unknown. Uh, you, yes, I think that's where I saw. You it. shall purge the innocent, the guilt of innocent blood from your midst, because you must do what is right in the sight of the Lord. That was. Okay. One part. Yep. I thought there was another one that but I can't put my finger on it right now. Um uh, it's it's actually the, it's actually the end of verse twenty one where if you've got a rebellious son you take him to the um uh, to, uh, the, that's to the pit, to the uh, elders at the gate and uh, they stone him to death and that will purge the evil from your midst. And all yes, Israel yes. will hear and, and be afraid. All Israel will hear and be afraid. Exactly. Now uh, I, uh, th- I'm picking this up and connecting it to the idea of the soldier who expressed a little too much fear and we didn't want to spread that through. So the author of Deuteronomy here in these chapters is very persuaded about the contagiousness of fear. Very, very persuaded. It's a bad thing if there's a frightened soldier because that soldier is going to contaminate the, the rest. So better to leave that soldier at home. But it's a good thing if you can instill some fear by by stoning a rebellious child because everyone else is going to hear about that and you will fix that problem, no one else. And I'm reminded of a, of a, a library teacher that I had at school who grew up out in the in the the more rural parts of of Australia and his every time there was a little bit too much noise in the library he would come out and say to everyone to be quiet be quiet and then he'd walk back into his office muttering all you need to do is shoot one he said when they're with crows you just shoot one and the rest fly away and they don't come back (laughs) so so that, that was his that was his um vocalized suggestion now now, Locke, the, on that note, on that note, yeah. um, <clears throat> this is so improbable that it, it, can't, it sounds funny and students laugh when I tell them the story, but the actual event is obviously incredibly tragic. But do you remember Anton's story about the school he went to in Sri Lanka? Mm, we had, Lachlan I and I were lucky enough to be taught maths at Avondale by a man named Anton who grew up in Sri Lanka at the height of the civil unrest. And he remembers a student being shot in school assembly because the student was a serial offender and the government was paying for their education and trying to fight a battle, you know, civil war at the same time. 
And if you were not going to be taking this seriously, it just wasn't worth their money spending it on you. Mm. So um, you you were the equivalent of the enemy they were fighting. Yeah, that's the trouble. Wow. Uh, now, yeah. now, Lachlan, I want to challenge one of your um, pet subjects with these passages, um, and let me raise it in this way: um, when I sentence somebody, uh, very often. Uh, one of the principal um, uh, purposes of the sentence that I express is general deterrence. And this mm. seems to suggest that general deterrence is a legitimate sentencing purpose. Where does that fit in with restorative yeah, well, justice? You, yes, yes, Ken, well well done, well skewered. Um <laughs> No, my my. I don't want to be. I don't want to be, be taken as criticizing restorative <laughs> justice for a moment. I might say. But no, but my my. I'm not an expert on this, but I know. I know, for example, that um, deterrent is one of the arguments used in favour of a death penalty, mm. and the data that I have read of, and I'm not, I'm not the expert in the field, but the data I have read of suggests that it's not a particularly effective deterrent. Um, in fact, there is data that says that the crime rates are in fact higher in um, uh, states that have the death penalty than uh, states that don't. Um, but and, and so there's you're right to treat uh, the death penalty at least as as a deterrent with some skepticism. Uh, well, so if we just restrict it to that, because it does seem to me here that the death penalty is at least some of what's being talked mm. about, especially in that troubling passage about rebellious children mm. being being handed over by their parents, yeah. no less, and, to be stoned by the elders at the city gate. And they're, they're, it's, it's, you know, you can embellish their rebellion a little bit because if, if they're just disobedient uh, and they don't do what you tell them to do, uh, then you take them and you don't just say that they're stubborn and rebellious you, and won't obey you. They say you, you've got to tell them they're a glutton and a drunkard as well, um, yeah. <laughs> even though that's not part of the crime necessarily. Perhaps it, perhaps that's the ways that they are rebellious and disobedient. I'd, I'd, love, to know, I'd love to know if this ever happened. Were there any parents that turned over their kids? <laughs> it's hard. It, it's, yeah. Given our culture, it's hard to uh, uh, believe that that's what would happen. But, no, no, Ken. In our culture, there's still parents who mistreat children. Actually, that's very true. That's very tragically true. Uh, but what's here is not described as a mistreatment. It's, it's, it's. I've, I've, I've sort of cast it well, in that light. But it's, it's the, it's the passage of justice, isn't it? The execution mm. of justice. Yeah. So my my comment simply is, if we empirically observe, you know, the the discussion that that you know Ken you launched us onto about the the effectiveness or the validity of the deterrent, general deterrent, um, it it seems to me not entirely clear cut, and yet it is quite assumed um, by the author here. There there is a number of places where the the it's describing the establishment of a fear motivation. Mm. Um, and I fundamentally, my approach to the world is, is essentially to question and be very skeptical of uh, any time that the, that the central motivation is one of fear. Um, it seems to me whether that's r religious fear, 
you know, trying to motivate people by making them extremely scared of their eternal destiny. I don't think that's the best way to build. That's not the right platform to build a relationship with God that's a productive relationship. And it seems to me, looking historically at at people that have had to had to negotiate that deep fear. Um, I'm talking here particularly about you know eternal conscious torment in the fires mm. of hell. Mm. Um, that seems to me to be a pretty valid reason to become an atheist in many instances. Um, because such a God seems not to be, to my mind at least, not to be one that's that's all that attractive to build a relationship with. Mm. Uh, and that's that's the sort of troubling thing here. And then when it you know, so many other motivations, other contexts where we experience motivation through fear, I just think there's so much better motivators, mm. so much more productive and more effective motivations. Um, and that I'm I'm actually what I'm really saying here is. I am finding the general acceptance of the of the automatic pretty stark fear as a motivator. I'm finding that to be almost as on the nose and distaste, distasteful as this idea of of taking a captive woman as a as a wife. There's obviously no, you know, there's all sorts of problems with that. There's no agency given to that woman at all, even though as you point out Cam, there's a certain restriction and limitation on the <laughs> on the 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 man's actions here it's still utterly distasteful in its in its ignorance of the agency of the woman um you know the the woman who has had the rest of her family murdered and slaughtered by this same person who now wants to be her husband anyway it's extremely twisted but my comment simply is that i feel this fear motivation is almost as twisted it's it's striking me with that same level of distaste uh, it's also the case, Locke, when we get to the death penalty, uh, that though this doesn't explain it away, uh, ca- women were being stolen all the time. Uh, mm. and, and there's lots of really odd stories. There's the story in the Book of Judges where the uh, tribes have a falling out and they go to fight the Benjamites, is it? And then they vow and declare that none of them will, um, will ever let their daughters marry a Benjamite. They've had enough of them, and then and then they have then they cool down a bit. And then they say, "Oh, just hang on. If if the Benjamites don't get married and have kids, we'll we'll be missing one of the twelve tribes." And that's <laughs> that's really bad if one of the tribes died out. But we've all just sworn not to not to give our daughters to the Benjamites. What will we do? I know what we'll do is the Benjamites will give them permission to to steal our daughters. They they organise yeah, okay. they organise a situation in which the Benjamite men and I think there's six hundred of them left or something. There's a few of them left. You know, there's some big party going on. That they rush in and grab some women and run off, and that's solved the problem. Um, I'm paraphrasing. Mm. I may have got some of the details incorrect, but our listeners are welcome to turn to the last couple of chapters of Judges, which are a wild read. Um, yeah, and and look up the details. It, it's also the case, Locke, that there would have been a lot of death penalties going around the place. Mm. There wasn't a centrally administered justice system, and I'm thinking of the story of is it Abner, um, who, in in the various kerfuffles when uh, David is just newly king or just about to become king, and Abner, who was served Saul, changes sides, and then um, David's commander pretends to be friendly and goes out to shake his hand and stabs him because Abner, mm. while he worked for Saul, had killed his family. Mm. And uh, this is seen as just the ju- justice unfolding. Like David doesn't 
David rebukes the person who kills Abner, but doesn't doesn't punish him for it because Abner had killed that guy's family, and so he was entitled to kill him back. And mm. um, it's really hard to imagine. It's really hard to imagine how this passage would have sounded to the to the people at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. We we read it and we say, "Oh, this is such gruesome, awful violence," and it's killing everywhere. Um, and it might be that the people who first heard it said, "What? What is it? Are they the only circumstances when we're allowed to kill someone? Rats! I was hoping to, <laughs> I was hoping to kill a lot more people than that." Um, so and, yeah, the, I don't know. Two, if that, I don't think on. that solves the problem. But well, these two comments don't necessarily solve it either. But it occurs to me perhaps this is um, one of those occasions where. Uh, there's an assumption being made uh, by the author about the intention behind the rule uh, that doesn't necessarily match the intention. Uh, so, uh, um, and, and there are examples we have of this all the time uh, where we find that um, people promote a particular health principle uh, and they say, well, this is the biological reason behind that health principle and subsequently um, the biological reason is shown to be uh, you know, completely uh, incorrect. Uh, but the principle itself was still one that was beneficial, uh, although the mm. mechanism by which it produced that benefit was, was different. Um, uh, and, and perhaps this might be one of those things where um, uh, there's uh, God is imposing a requirement of proportionality uh, and... Uh, uh, the, the author is saying, well, cl- clearly that's uh, one that operates through fear. Um, mm. uh, when in fact, uh, the real reason that it's going to work is because um, uh, you know, it promotes restraint uh, or indicates a more loving response. Um, so mm. so that's, that's, mm. that's one of those, one of the comments that, that perhaps could be made about this passage. And the other is, um, uh, in a sense, contradictory. Uh, to that, but uh, it might be that uh, uh, for somebody who is uh, ethical, um, who has positive uh, motivations, uh, and who is uh, going to try to tell the truth, uh, a motivation of fear uh, will never be effective uh, for them. Uh, But for somebody who has the avarice uh, and uh, a malicious intent um, uh, of such a degree that they will uh, give false testimony in order to achieve um, uh, their um, objective with Malafides, uh, then mm. uh, perhaps for that sort of person, um, for somebody who's prepared to behave in that way, an effective counterbalance is uh, the fear that the consequence that I am seeking may well, uh, you know, come back on me. Um, mm. So that it it could be an effective way of preventing, uh, or at least minimising, uh, that sort of evil. It may not be effective uh, when you're dealing with um, more. Uh, 
you know, crimes committed in the heat of the moment, opportunistic crimes um, uh, or crimes of, uh, uh, you know, provocation or anger um, in a moment. Uh, but for that sort of uh, considered um, uh, mm. dishonesty, uh, then that type of fear might be an effective uh, deterrent. Uh, well, thanks for that, Ken. And it's from, while you've been saying that, it's shifted the lens a little bit in my eyes here on the word fear. And it's reminded me that the Old Testament also describes a fear of God. The fear, I, I may have to retract a little bit of what I said in in the quest of at least um, being open to going and learning something because it could be a, a kind of respect you know the the fear motivation here in the passage that you shared with us is all in the context of of basically saying someone should be if if someone is is a is deliberately false in their testimony if someone is going out to be a false witness they should be afraid that's kind of another way of saying, Hey everyone, we we need to have respect. We need to establish respect for our system of law, because otherwise it doesn't work, and it it's not really anything. And then what have we got? We've sort of got nothing. Um, and and so maybe it's it's speaking of it's really trying to paint a picture of the importance of having a fair and and reliable legal system. Mm. Uh, and that's something that I'm perhaps a little bit more on board with than, yeah. <laughs> than general fear motivation. So I better be a little careful. <laughs> There's something else I wanted to draw our attention to, and it's only because of how I want to highlight something that's that's easy to miss. I'm happening to read tonight from a Bible which is called um, the Green Bible. Like lots of Bibles, it's got some colored words, but instead of just coloring the words of Jesus's speech in red in the New Testament, the the people who put this particular edition together have colored throughout the entire Bible passages in the green font if they identify it as be, being connected to general sort of ecological environmental themes. It's an interesting way to do a thematic Bible. You're not altering the any words. You're not actually adding commentary, but you're adding a, a, a lens through which to read some of this stuff just by coloring some of the words. And there is a passage colored in green here in Deuteronomy 20 at the end of the rules of warfare. Let me just read it to you because I think this is something that will we will feel much less passionate about than the, the than the killing of children or the or the taking of women those things kind of wind us up a little bit but what about the cutting of trees listen to this um this is Deuteronomy 20 starting in verse 19 if you besiege a town for a long time making war against it in order to take it you must not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them although you may take food from them you must not cut them down are trees in the field human beings that they should come under siege from you? You may destroy only the trees that you know do not produce food. You may cut them down for use in building siege works against the town that makes war with you until it falls. Mm. So this is an interesting... You can see why the, the people who put this particular Bible together colored those words in green. You must not cut down the trees. Um, At least not by wielding an axe against them. Um, okay, if you've got a well, chainsaw, you, go. you might be okay. <laughs> Maybe that's why the, the general and large issues of deforestation have only become bad since the invention of bulldozers and chainsaws. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, but but it, 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 the other interesting thing about that is 
there is this general statement, you can't cut down the trees. And then, and mm. then there's a qualification on that statement. And we see this in laws and rules all, all the time, don't we? Uh, we, we see mm. this general statement of principle. And, and then we realise that, well, actually, if we apply that principle uh, universally, there's going to be difficulties. So we need to create an exception to that. So, okay, well, actually, what we really mean is you can't cut down the, the, the trees that produce fruit. Um, mm. And then you can only cut down the trees that you need to continue your mission. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, it's really interesting. Why is it? Like, I'm sure that... So there's some raw economic sort of considerations happening here, I suppose. You know, even if you're conquering a land, trees take a long time to mm. grow and become, you know, yielding. So it's not just a, a sort of instantaneous consequence, but a, but a prolonged one if you if you cut down the fruit-bearing trees. There's, there's that sort of sense. Um, I, I, again, the, 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 the style of writing here, the throwing in of this rhetorical question, um, are trees in the field human beings that they should come under siege from you? Mm. Um, I, <laughs> I think that's written really beautifully. And it sort of, I think, comes across to me as a, as a reminder, like the, there's some things that are your human affairs, but, but, even if even if you were in the Garden of Eden called to 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 have some level of rulership over the natural world, don't just assume that you can always just do with it all what you will. Um, I mean, I, to be honest, I actually find it rather striking here. The the rights of the trees oh. uh, are protected in certain caveats of restraint, in a very similar way to the rights of the of the woman even though she doesn't have many, as I've pointed out. I find it a bit on the nose, but she has some, um, and she can't be sold as a slave uh, at the end of the process. So, yeah, that same sort of attitude is extended to vegetation. It's, it's mm. uh, an, an indication um, and, and a pointer to the responsibility, the ongoing responsibility and obligation you have as uh, to those things which are capable of being exploited um, mm. and uh, I wish it was a um, a command that the possums in my orchard would heed um, <laughs> heathen uh, more fully yes. <laughs> they're, he they're yes. heathen possums they're, they're pagans and philistines <laughs> yes well I you can should... tell you they, just, they, they, they climb you should my wage war <laughs> yes, wage war within the law, um, <laughs> which is pretty limiting, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, possums are remarkable. So I was only just just in the last few weeks chatting. My parents have gone to some considerable lengths to put a a, a fence and netting around some fruit trees that they have. They have some possums, mysteriously and somewhat magically, getting through a fairly secure fence and net, but. When they do get through, the possums are eating the rind off the lemons on the lemon yes. tree. Not the interior of the yes. lemons. And some of the lemons are left with an almost perfect lemon inside with just the rind essentially peeled off it on the tree. And I just, that baffles me because I would have thought that's the wrong way round. It, it's, it's not a service <laughs> at all. We, we have rats that do that uh, on our lemon tree. And we've had a, we've had a plague of them. Uh, and and we, oh. Wendy went out and counted 40, 
4-0 lemons that had been stripped of the skin and 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 the rind and left simply with the pulp uh, hanging on wow. the tree. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, there you go. That's... Um... <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty wild. Well, here I have I have a verse for you, Ken, in your situation, and it's from it's from Deuteronomy nineteen verse seventeen. You shall annihilate. <laughs> I'm going to do a quick fire um, laws. Um, I'm going to tell you the law, and you uh, tell me what you think about it. Um, if you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. You can take the young, but be sure to let the mother go. Well, again, you see, here's the um, the limit on the exploitation that you're able to have. Uh, in the same way that you're not allowed to destroy the fruit-bearing trees, which provide a useful resource, um, neither are you allowed to take the mother that will continue to produce. Um, mm. So there, there you go. Again, it's something that feels a bit uncomfortable. What about but- this one? There's, there's a building code established here in Deuteronomy. Uh, when you build a new house, make a parapet around the roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls off the roof. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um, a precursor to our makes... occupational health and safety laws. Um, <laughs> uh, scaffolding and uh, appropriate working from height safety measures. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it certainly makes a little bit more sense as well if you remember that many of the roofs being spoken of here in the Old Testament are probably flat roofs hmm. and they're used for storage. They're, they're probably frequented a little bit more regularly than we tend to in our Australian homes stand on our roofs. Hmm. Uh, okay, uh, do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. Ah, this is one of my this is one of my favourites, Cam, because um, it is it is given. Okay, it's not quite equivalent to, but it seems to be almost as significant as some of the discussions of um, same-sex relationships. And so a, a traditional Bible reader who wants to defend a biblical definition of marriage should, in my opinion, object just as vociferously to a man and a woman getting married in a cotton polyester blend suit as they do to a, a man and a man getting married. Because both seem to me to be highly irregular and against the law of God. Ah, good. Well, we'll um, we might not go further into comment on that, Luck, but I'm glad for that uh, for that comparison. What about the very clear commandment that you are to make tassels on the four corners of the cloak you wear? Mm. Uh, I'll, I'll pop into my tailor tomorrow. <laughs> I don't. I don't wear a cloak. <laughs> yeah, we well, see you're exempt. Well, you're, you're fine. fine. You got no worries. <laughs> right. Okay. It is. There yeah. are some. I, some of these passages do make you feel that you're like reading someone else's mail, um, from mm. from a very long time ago. Like there's a. There's, it's doesn't seem like it's quite meant for us. Yeah. Well, I was going to make the comment that I assume that a a strict Orthodox Jew even today has the way still has ways in which they implement their their keeping of these laws too um, and feel passionate about it and I think legitimately so given their their view of the significance of this stuff in the same way that we feel passionate about you know our, our observance of the Sabbath or um, 
that's a that's a big one for Adventism, you know. Um, so there must be ways. I, I have no idea. Maybe it is true that Orthodox, strict Orthodox Jews don't wear uh, blended fiber clothes. Or maybe they see this as simply being wool and linen and maybe wool and polyester, uh, polyester okay. doesn't, maybe yeah. that's fine. Um, you know, and, and I, I don't really want to be flippant about it because I think that what, as we've commented in a few recent episodes, what they are trying to do is genuinely and earnestly um, follow the will of God as they understand it to be. And I think that the striking and humbling thing for us to remember is the people who were first hearing and reading Deuteronomy wouldn't be recognizing us as followers of the same God. They lived in a world where there were many, many gods. They would be very comfortable with the idea that we were following a different one. Everyone had different gods. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> it is. And um, I have heard the Adventist church sometimes enthusiastically described as the church that follows the whole law. Hmm. And uh, I'm not sure... I don't think it's true. I'm not even sure if it ought to be true. Uh, are we? But we qualify yeah, it, don't we? We qualify it. We say no, no, because there's the there's the two types of law, aren't there? There's the moral law, and then there's the what's the other one? Ceremonial, Ceremonial law. Called, I think. Yeah. Mm. And that that lets us off the hook. We're off the hook altogether. Problem solved. Yeah, I mean, so but that raises the question that I think we're grappling with this entire season, you know, this entire quarter of a year. If we are living in the New Testament era and we're off the hook and we have a different picture and a better revelation of God, what's the value in Deuteronomy? You know, what is there here for us? You know, why not basically adopt the opinion of some of the reformers throughout Christian history and just do some editing to the Bible? Let's drop a few of those pesky books out that are just not not lingeringly valuable. Well, I certainly don't want to drop Deuteronomy out if that's the approach that we're going to take because I have particularly enjoyed the stories uh, and the discussion and the um, uh, the detail in Deuteronomy. Yeah. Well, to be very clear, I also agree, Ken. And I, and I actually think there's been a remarkable, even just our, um, was it last week, we were chatting about uh, some instructions given to the king mm. when Israel would finally ask for a king. And at the end of that discussion, we realized, well, hang on, so many of us are um, are like kings in our own contexts. We have responsibilities. We have positions of leadership in certain mm. ways. Um, and suddenly we realized that some instructions given to kings thousands and thousands of years ago remind us of our own mm. responsibilities. Um, I think that what we've highlighted here is that the... The written detail of many of these laws that we've talked about this episode are very difficult to to map one to one to our context. But the overall message of, I mean, I'm hearing a fundamental message of restraint. You know, if you're going to lay siege to a town, don't cut down the fruit trees. Uh, if you're going to murder an entire village and take all their women, then just remember they, you may be treating them like property, but you can't just continue to treat them mindlessly like property. There's some restraint there. Um, you, you're going to have a, a law, a system of law. Well, don't get too carried away. There are some, there's some process to go through. You need a certain number of witnesses. You need to think a little bit about the value of those witnesses. Those messages of restraint, um, I think, resonate pretty heavily across to our culture. 
we we live in a culture that that almost worships the idea of the lack of restraints mm. both economically and ethically yeah and um the the question that you ask if you have a group of students and you want to start a a, a discussion question you if if you're looking for like a, to break the ice in a room or to pass the time of students in the playground or something uh the question that you ask always starts with if you could choose hmm. between this and this if you could be anywhere in the world right now where would you want to be and depressingly at least a third of any class that i teach they'll say that if they could be anywhere in the world the place i'd most like to be is their bedroom hmm. uh which i find unusual and the the hypothetical that consistently produces the most disagreements in our listeners this is frivolous and off topic but uh, our listeners may wish to ponder this question and this is this is guaranteed to divide a room very quickly is um if you had to fight for your life and could choose between fighting a horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses which would you rather fight Um, (laughs) but it's always if you could choose if you could choose if you could do whatever you want if Mm. you uh Mm. and that's that is the mindset of the age that we live in uh a closing thought i've just tried to put my finger on the exact reference and i can't but i know it's from the screw tape letters by c.s lewis uh in it the senior devil writing advice to the junior devil states that he is to encourage um thoughts of ownership wherever possible that his the, the human being that the devil is tempting is to think of things as his you know uh, there are two ways in which this can be done a child can think a toy is theirs in the sense that it is theirs to look after theirs to care for theirs to bring value to by making it special or they can think that the toy is theirs in the sense that they can do whatever they want to it and no one will stop them mm. and uh at least in the attitudes of the laws we've stated, as, as you were saying a lot, even though some of the details are very uncomfortable for us, uh, it's very clearly articulated that, that there is nothing that is ours in the sense that we can do whatever we want with and no one, mm. no one can stop us. That, that sort of ownership doesn't exist. Yeah. Thanks, Cam. We might leave it there. Uh, <clears throat> we hope that you have enjoyed our discussion. As always, uh, feel free to, to pass this uh podcast on uh, to one of your friends or your enemies or to anyone else you feel might benefit and uh feel free to to send us comments uh, to the address sabbath school from home at gmail.com and uh, we hope you join us again next week